From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. Today, my guest is Jostein Solheim, Group CEO of Health and Wellbeing at Unilever, where he also led the re-radicalization of activist ice cream brand, Ben & Jerry's. Jostein, welcome to Lead with We. Thank you, Simon. I'm happy to it's, be here. It's so good to see you. I think we first met at a Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit years ago, and we've chatted since, but how are you feeling about this new year? Here we are in 2022. We've had this crazy couple of years with COVID. Like, how are you feeling? You know, you've got this new role. Are you feeling optimistic? You know, I am, I am a prisoner of my own optimism, uh, but even us uh, diehard optimists, I got to say, get a little bit of a, of a hit as you're coming into the year, ready to go, and then we get a new variant, and we just got to hold back a few more months before we can get out there. But I, I, I sort of feel that we're starting to work out this the cycle here and that I'm, I'm, I'm still hopeful that we will be out of this next wave soon. Right, it feels like we're slowly having to carry less and less a weight as we, it all becomes a little bit more normalized. And, you know, you've had this storied career at Ben & Jerry's and now at Unilever. And I want to start at the beginning because there are those people out there who obviously have heard of Ben & Jerry's, but to them on the face of it, it's an unlikely coupling, this global enterprise with so many brands and this sort of iconic activist Ben & Jerry's. Why did Unilever reach out to Ben & Jerry's in the first place? Can you tell us that? Well, you know, like like all good things, it was a little bit driven by competition. So uh, as, uh, as the, you know, Unilever has said, it's the world's biggest ice cream player. Back then, Nestle was the other big player. Nestle signed an agreement with uh, Haagen-Dazs, which basically left Ben & Jerry's, uh, you know, as a, as a potential partner in the sort of super premium ice cream market. So... So Unilever approached uh, Ben & Jerry's during a quite a tumultuous period of Ben & Jerry's where they were having some internal disagreements. Right. And, and you know, after a very long process, uh, came to an agreement. Yeah, I love it. Very long process. I mean, you've got personalities, you've got company culture, you've got the legal component, and you're sort of trying to like dock in space these two entities how would you characterize that process in hindsight? What's it like when a fiercely independent company that had a lot of autonomy in its own right and really kind of steered its own ship, kind of how does it sort of integrate to a, a systems-driven enterprise? Well, interestingly, it didn't really integrate. That was part of the deal. Uh, so the deal was really very structured and actually very legal and very formal. So what it did was a, a very fat uh, contract uh, but what it really set out was the sort of forerunner to B Corps. So right. it set out a governance uh, model, which uh, ensured that the independence, uh, the social mission, the core values, the foundation, all these elements were actually very structurally addressed in the acquisition agreement. And there was a formal process uh, you know, to follow. Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, a lot of young companies and founders want to protect that secret source when they, they face an acquisition opportunity and so on. And so that so and Unilever was open to that. And was that the very reason they reached out to Ben and Jerry? So they were, they were open to that option? 
I don't think that they thought that's where this was going to end. Uh, but, you know, if you look at it in hindsight, having this powerful independent board of directors that is sort of primary responsibility for the social mission and the purpose of the company. And then you have Unilever that's the owner and has the legal responsibility and the primary responsibility for the commercial aspects of the business. Actually, if you look at M&A and ROIs and returns, uh, Ben & Jerry's is, is right up there as one of the most financially successful uh, acquisitions of, from a multinational. So probably more pain than they thought up front, but then more gain uh, as we went along. Totally get it. And how do they find a CEO? What, you were in 2010, you took over as CEO. How do they find someone like you? I mean, that is a unique CEO that they want, right? It, it was, I had been in Unilever. I was in Unilever when I took this role. And I would say I was one of those that focused a lot on turnarounds. And I'd actually come to the United States for a turnaround in 2007 uh, to, to, to turn around our ice cream business and integrate it and move it around and do all sorts of reshaping of the business. And I, I can still remember the, uh, the head of that North American business uh, came to me as I was sort of wrapping up that assignment. And I was sort of happily thinking, I go back to Europe and you know, get my kids into high school in Europe. Uh, didn't even then really fully fathom how high college fees are in America. I do now, now that know that. But no, they came to me and they said, we finally found the right job for you. After all these years, <laughs> now you can be a rebel, but you can be a rebel with a cause. There you go. So they were just, yeah, they had the personality, they had the opportunity and brought it together. How did you feel going in? Because, you know, it's interesting, you've said that you were actually, your ambition was to re-radicalize Ben & Jerry's, which sounds a bit kind of intuitive to us because we already thought that they were pretty radical in the spectrum of brands. So, you know, how did you feel going in and why did you feel the need to re-radicalize the brand? I got to say, as, as you go into something as iconic uh, as Ben & Jerry's, you do come in with a certain amount of humility and a little bit like concern if you're not, are you going to fit in, you know, sure. do I exchange my car? What am I going to do? What do I say? What shirt do you wear on the first day? It says everything, you know. Exactly. <laughs> All of this. Now, uh, uh, to be fair, I, I sort of went in with, with who I am and, and what I am. I, I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve and, and, and be pretty transparent. So you sort of, you get what you see. Uh, but, but what really struck me after the first week was this was not an intellectual hothouse. This was not one of precious ideas and ideology. This was a doing company, a company that is centered around doing, of executing of really making a difference, but it wasn't, it wasn't like an intellectual process. It was mm. a practical process. And I found that extremely liberating. That's really interesting because I think a lot of companies would fancy themselves as companies that do, because I think the market rewards that, employees expect it. How did that happen at Ben & Jerry's? Was it a function of Ben & Jerry themselves and they were just so sort of walking their talk boots on the ground themselves? How did they, or was it organic? I mean, we have to give a lot of credit to, to Ben. So if, if you could say Ben is the, the, the permanently dissatisfied with the status quo and, and having to really ensure that we're doing absolutely everything in our power to make things right, to achieve justice. And, and, and then Jerry is the one that makes us all want to work there and, and be there. So between the two of them, they, they, they created this thing. But, you know, Ben really... You know, he wasn't going to do this. He, he was actually going to get out of the business. And, uh, and uh, 
And somebody said, well, if you don't like business, if you don't like business people, why don't you make a different business? Why don't you make a business that, that invests in the community in which it buys its ingredients? Why don't you use your business to, to, to speak up? Why don't you use your voice? Uh, why do you have to take this model as given? And you got to remember, this is, you know, in the 80s. I mean, this is when, you know, we were shoulder pads and, you know, nobody talked about, about sure. you know, ESG and, and purpose-led businesses. So, uh, so it was really a breakthrough set of thinking uh, and then a relentless commitment to justice. And, you know, what you're saying there is really important. For those who don't know, you know, Ben & Jerry's characterized itself as a social justice company that happens to make ice cream, not the other way around. And, you know, that integrity of intent where you're a purpose with a company, not a company with a purpose, is so important. And tell us, how does that guide you in all the many decisions that any business, ice cream or otherwise, has to make? I mean, do you look at it through the lens of your social mission first and make the decision on that basis? Or is it case by case? What's it like? No, so, so back in 1988, uh, they had a, a very uh, high energy uh, board meeting. And uh, they were going to try to define the mission of, uh, of Ben and Jerry's, the three-part mission. And um, as all good meetings, everybody gave a lot of input. They all left the room and one person sat down and wrote it out. And that is still the three-part mission statement of Ben and Jerry's today. Wow. And that is a three-part mission plus, you know, a couple of cheats. So you basically got the environmental mission, which is the product mission. So make the absolutely best possible product in the most natural way with the least environmental impact. That's the product mission. Only successful companies have an impact. Only successful companies remain companies. So there's an economic mission to return a, a, a fair shareholder return and to be economically viable. And then there is a social mission, which is anchored in and around social justice. Right. And then if you take those three pillars, the product, the social, and the economic, that was linked together in this model called linked prosperity. And linked prosperity really goes right back to the farm and says, how can we think about buying our biggest ingredient cream in a way that supports the dairy farmers? And think of it as an investment in the dairy community, an investment in the cocoa farmers, an investment in the banana co-op versus an extraction uh, of economic value. So that was the sort of the model of linked prosperity. And by having that printed up and put in every single room in the company, it means that every single decision in that company could be challenged by any single individual, whether we were adhering. So the, every, everyone was empowered to do that. They had a right to speak up. Totally. And, and you know, let me push in on that a little bit because, you know, so many companies are piled onto the purpose space and there's ESG washing and there's so many funds now and so on. And, you know, with the best of intentions, a lot of companies are playing at it or managing the optics of their brands as opposed to doing it for real. So in your direct experience of CEO of Ben & Jerry's for eight years, what is the connective tissue between really leaning in and leading with the purpose of your company and the profit and the sale of products? How does that work? I mean, you, you actually lay it out quite nicely in your model as well. But uh, the trick is not, it, it's a top down, the bottom up. And the fact is that when you are on a bigger mission than just making money, 
uh, when you're on a mission to truly impact the world, when you're taking on the, the causes and the issues that really matter to your people, the organizational execution power doubles at least. You know, our factories were the most efficient factories in the ice cream world, lowest waste levels, the most committed workforce. And that, that permeates throughout the company because we cannot afford to waste any ingredients because we're trying to push that money into the communities that we are here to serve. So it really drives a level of engagement and execution in all elements of the business from straight operations, finance, normal marketing. So it doesn't, it, it permeates your whole ecosystem uh, and your partner system uh, and your customers. So in, in that sense, you know, I saw an incredible lift in, uh, in just performance, you know, performance per person in a company, impact per person in a company. And then when you've got this temptation that every company, if they're lucky enough, has, which is, hey, we've got an opportunity to go into a new market or we can scale here or the big boys in the industry are trying to kind of muscle us out and you could compromise the integrity of your, your social mission to capture that opportunity or play defense, what do you tell yourself at a board level, at a company level? You will never compromise. You will never compromise on any one of those elements. Uh, you might emphasize a bit more or go lead or sequence differently, but you could never do something that compromises. So we would never put out a product that maybe supported a cost with these perfect ingredients from these farms, but the product didn't taste good. Like every time you spend $4 on a pint of Ben and Jerry's, it's got to blow your socks off. There's just no compromise. Same thing on social mission. Will we be actively be able to promote on every course or speak up on everything? No. But would we do something that undermines it? Absolutely not. So, so there is a, a, you know, there is a keep walking. Don't, don't strive for perfection, but don't undermine your values. And I'm sure you attract a certain type of employee people who come to the company because you're so clear-eyed about the role you want to play in the world. But that almost creates a rod for your own back because there's got to be a lot of internal demand from your employee base, right? And how do you manage that? Yeah, no, you listen. I mean, you got to do a lot of listening. You got to run fast if you want to stay ahead. You know, and, and it, it takes all forms and shapes. You know, we were hit with a very bad storm some years back. And just where I lived, it didn't, it didn't do a lot of damage. But by our factory in, in Waterbury, it washed out half the village. So when I showed up for work on Monday, I'm going, where is everyone? And they're, like, they're in Waterbury. They've got equipment together. They're all down there working with the community to help people restore their homes after the, the damage. And I was like, whoa. So I had to quickly change clothes, cancel meetings, jump in the car, and get there because you got to be on site to lead. But it's, you know, it's, it's the, the bottom up movement. Right. So it, it is a back and forth. I would also say not everybody in a company has to agree to everything. What we got to agree to is once we, once we go, we go and we go all in. And it's not always easy to go. I know that you were very sensitive to the fact that when the Black Lives Matter movement became such a, you know, top of mind all around the world that, you know, you said in the press that you were concerned that, how could a majority white-led company have an authentic voice in this place? So in this space, how do you, well, obviously you, you, you want to lean into that issue, but how do you navigate that, that issue? It took three years. It took three years. It took one year of unconscious bias, 
training. It took a year. In that year, it was lots of different learning journeys, etc. The second year, we came out of the shell and we we went to the events. We marched. We talked. We went to meet with the different community centers and organizers. We still messed up, you know, forty percent of the time, but they were benevolent and and nice to us. And then. In year three, I mean, one of our big breakthroughs was we actually went to, to meet with uh, uh, former representative John Lewis. And we literally walked in and said, you know, uh, Congressman, what can, we, what can we do? We're a 96% white company. And he said, well, what, what is it that you're here to? He said, well, we want to address systemic and structural racism in America. And he looked at us and he gave us four hours. He, he blew out his whole afternoon. And I don't think I've ever been that inspired and energized about an issue, but that was in 2012. So, you know, it's, it, it takes time to authentically enter and understand. It takes time as a white person with a white identity, as a male, a lot of, lot of identity challenges here to overcome if you want to be a humble part of that movement. The other area which is so important beyond engaging consumers around movements, beyond fostering a culture where people feel they have a voice to bring issues and stay true to your mission, is upstream, your own supply chain, having your own house in order. You know, I know that you did a lot of work in and around your suppliers and making sure that, you know, they were treated well, there was no fear of re retaliation. Why was that important and what did you do? In a way, you know, the, the, the front end of Ben & Jerry's is, is fun, it's pop culture, it's Everything is a smile. Everything is about the, the opportunity and possibility to change the world. The back end of Ben & Jerry is extremely granular, very metric oriented. So in a way, we, we were really targeting that each pint should contain the maximum number of ingredient investment in those communities. And, you know, can we get that to 80%, 90% that there was a program behind that ingredient? Interesting. Uh, so that, that is really that, that thing. Now, I mean, I can give you another example, you know, between Ben and Jerry's and, and my, my, my current gig as, as setting up health and, and, and well-being, I, I led the, the division of food and beverages in North America. And, you know, you take a brand like Hellman's, which is, you know, a hundred year old brand. People sort of think they know it. And, and we, we sort of said, well, what are we doing with, with Hellman's? What, is, what are we all about? What is our role uh, in society? And as I took the job, I was, Cognizant, I wanted to make sure I went to meet those farmers. There were about 600,000 acres of soybean farmers in Iowa that grows the soybean oil that goes into Helmets. So I said, I really want to go there before I go to any customer. So we, we flew out and we met with the farmers that grow our crop. And based on those discussions, we updated our program in and around cover crop. What we saw was the biggest environmental impact we could have in, in the production of soybean was the introduction of cover crops. We reduce runoff, we increase organic matter in the soil, so we reduce the chemical load on the farm. But believe it or not, there are 20, 30 different soil types on one farm, the incline of the field, everything matters. So we, based on those discussions, we, we tweaked our program to say, we're gonna pay you you know, X dollars for the first year, a little bit less the second year, a little bit less the third year, but we're gonna share the full cost and more upfront for you to convert to cover cropping. 
we started that, we partnered with others. We really aimed to get a million acres cover crop. That will have such a gigantic impact. If you just even look at the Gulf of Mexico, the runoff, but just the way that the health of that soil and the chemical load. Then we went to our own factory and we looked at the waste profile here. One of the things that will strike you when you stand in a, in a Hellman's factory is, hey, Americans eat a lot of mayonnaise because it's good, but it's also a lot of plastic. When you're watching that, you're seeing all this. It's plastic. So we said, all right, we're going to convert all our plastic to post uh, PCR, post-consumer use plastic. So we trigger a real demand for recycled plastic material. We move up fully away from virgin plastic. We reduce our carbon footprint by 60%. And then we looked also at the waste and the energy use in our own factory, and we looked at optimizing that. When we looked at that, then we turned to the consumer and we said, what, what role are we playing in their home? What is the biggest problem that we can help address? And it wasn't an easy one. It's actually is food waste. You know, 40, 42% of, uh, of food waste happens in the home. You know, food waste globally is like the third biggest country when it comes to carbon emission. But how do you find a fun and cheeky way to help people save money, eat better, and, and you know, reduce the, the stuff that they throw away, which by the way, saves the money. And, and that was then became the sort of the public facing, having done the farm, having done the plastic, having done the reduction, we then turned to that and we actually launched that with a Super Bowl ad and, you know, and went all in. And, uh, and what you'll see is that the, the net result of this business is just outstanding. I mean, just the fact that you go all in and then you go to the consumer to capture the ROI of those investments that you've made in those changes, I mean, there's a through line there through the whole value chain of the business that people fail to kind of pull it all the way through so that the work they've done upstream, they can recoup those costs downstream. And then they wonder why these isolated efforts don't work. I want to ask you, at some point after eight years, someone at Unilever walked up to you and had a similar conversation to the first one they had when they said, take over Ben and Jerry's, and they wanted you to start this new division. What did they say and what was it all about? And why, why was it necessary? Unilever is enormous. It's leading, as you say. Why? There's two, two steps here. What, one step was, you know, when you, when you do something uh, like this for eight years, uh, it, it really becomes you. And your purpose, your mission is intertwined uh, with the company and, and you live and breathe it. You are it. So I actually started about six years in to realize, wait a second, you know, you can't do this forever. This, this organism has to keep reinventing itself. It needs different impulses and different ways of being. So I actually sort of devised a two-year process for how to leave better Jerry's. I call it two plus two, two years to get out and two years in therapy to get over it. <laughs> <laughs> so... So that, so I was very conscious that I wanted Ben and Jerry's to, to, to flourish, to grow, to expand beyond my leadership uh, and, and evolve as an ecosystem. So that was one, one component, which was, which was hard. And we, we did a lot of work and, and you know, and I sort of, I could, I could move on. Um, I, I actually then went back and did this division because I wanted to take that model and, and say, can you really deploy this on all brands center store where, where people sort of said, this can't really be done. And, and, and really that's what we, what we did. And, uh, and, uh, but you know, that was back in the matrix. It was back in the sort of, so I really, I really love 
building high impact. And, and that I sort of feel also after having sold so much mental health uh, through ice cream, I should, I should really sell mental and physical health. So right. my passion was really around how do we build a high impact human-centered health or business. And, and you know, we, we built that up rather quickly. Uh, we, we acquired all the, we acquired a few other businesses rather quickly. And we now, you know, have, you know, a sizable uh, portfolio. So I then joined in the last summer, basically, to set this up and, and create this as a, as a collective of powerful companies that are there to serve their, their consumers and their communities. And, and when you're, you're building that portfolio and building something special, do you reverse engineer out of consumer needs and changing expectations and so on? Or do you start with the purposeful brands that are leading their category and then build your stable of brands that way? Or is it both? You know, which end do you lead with? It, it's so, you know, the, the beauty of being a, a purpose-led company is you kind of attract like-minded people. So, so all the companies that have joined our collective and that we've acquired had at their core a mission and a purpose uh, that was meaningful. Right. Now, were they living it in all aspects of the business? No, no nobody is. Everybody's on a journey. Um, but, you know, uh, each one of them had something very, very special and something very, very unique. And by, by, by putting ourselves together and think about how do we really now keep extending this model uh, in different ways, because it's a different industry, um, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to bring to, to that, to the industry. And, and what's the, what's the gap you're trying to fill? Because obviously there's a brief in terms of the type of companies you're trying to acquire and it's a very crowded space. So did you see a massive opportunity in there that wasn't being met? Well, a couple of things, uh, you know, we, we believe that, that, you know, you have to move from this idea of I, I'm sick, I need something uh, to how, how do you remain healthy or how do you excel at your health goals? So that is really moving from sort of a reactive state to a lifestyle of health. That was the first, first point. So the second point is most things that are joyous and fun stick. So that may be a little Ben and Jerry-esque, but if it's, if it's something that brings a smile to your face, you're probably going to keep doing it. If it's something that self-perpetuates uh, and gives you positive reinforcement. So how do we bring joy to health uh, was the other aspect. And then thirdly, I think what we saw was that the, the industry was moving towards us. Uh, people were looking away from letters and chemical formulations from a pack to like, I'm trying to solve this problem. Uh, you know, stress, sleep, uh, you know, and, and how can we help solve those problems? And, and, and that was sort of part of that journey. And it's sort of, it's about how you bring in the thinking of, you could say fast moving consumer goods to health. And is there anything else you're taking away from Ben and Jerry's? I mean, I think Ben and Jerry paid you the highest compliment in a New York Times article where they said you helped Ben and Jerry's rediscover its soul. I mean, that there could be no higher praise, but yet here you are building a family of brands for the first time. How do you invest young companies, new companies, a collection of companies with that sort of shared heart, shall we say? Well, you know, the, uh, the soul of a company is its people. Uh, you know, they're saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. Uh, culture is just another name for its people. Uh, and, 
And what we are doing in, in our setup here is we're very much keeping the people and their mission alive. So we're not integrating them into like a, a common set of, of values and missions. Each one remain on their value and mission. They're just getting a little extra oomph from being, being supported and, and helped along the journey, but it's their journey. I think right. that's the key. It's their journey. And that's yeah. the soul of each one of these companies. And that's what we believe other people are attracted to. Yeah, because, you know, the, this new sort of parent experience can't suffocate what made them so special in the first place. You know, I have to ask at the enterprise level, as a true sustainability leader for so long, you know, Unilever faces the challenge of always being held accountable to this higher bar it sets for itself. And I've, I've read in various places that, you know, representatives have said that it's hard to meet your sustainability goals when the industry isn't lifting itself up at the same time. There's only so much that you can do as an individual enterprise or an individual company inside the enterprise. So if you want to be a leader today, what do you think you need to do? Do you need to really embrace pre-competitive collaboration? Do you need to work cross-sector? Do you need to advocate for changes with the industry itself? And how important is that in the mix of all the other things that we've touched on if you really want to be a leader? So I think all of the things you, you, you listed are, are a firm yes, and none of them, none of them are an excuse for you not stepping up and taking accountability and responsibility for your own house. Uh, I think accountability is a gift. Uh, it's a gift that, that sharpens you and drives you uh, forward. Uh, I think perfection is highly overrated. You know, it's, it's about also recognizing we're not perfect and, and own it. I, I have gone to so many uh, activists and partners and said, look, we're not perfect. We're trying to do this thing. We're sort of like, I don't know, 50, 60%, but we're in. Nobody cares. They don't, nobody's expecting perfection. So right. I think that's part of the, the, the sort of the trap here is that, oh, if we don't do these things, cross-collaboration, government policy, da, da, da. we can't really do anything because you won't make a difference. Not true. You will make a difference. Holding yourself accountable, yes, but don't be scared of not being perfect. Act with intent. Act with clarity around your mission, but don't be scared that you're not 100% there because you're never going to be 100% there. You know, that sort of begs a, a final question I want to ask Josephine, which is, you know, leadership today could not be more different than how it was five or 10 years ago, but even more so because of the last couple of years. We have the climate crisis, we have you know, the BLM movement, you know, we have COVID and all its variants. How would you characterize purposeful, effective leadership moving forward? What do we need to be? How do we need to show up? How do we need to think? Many things come to mind, but servant leadership, uh, uh, is I think is one of the aspects of this. You know, this that the future of companies and the systems that will create the change in our capitalist setup is all about collaboration. And and leaders who who, who try to lead uh, through content and and telling, that is 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 very passe. It is about servant leadership. It is about an incredible amount of listening and take it on board. It's about creating the conditions around these incredibly passionate people that you have in your company that can do incredible things so that they can get on and do it, that they can be it and live 
the mission, the purpose, and the values of the company. They sort of figure out the rest. So it is a, a sense of letting go of some of the old style controls, but you get so much back uh, in terms of, because people feel that accountability because they're trying to do something bigger. So, uh, so I do think leaders have to be humble, have to be in service of their organizations, communities, the impact that they're trying to, to achieve, have to be extremely active listener and have to be willing to, to change when circumstances change and, and you know, no, no room for egos. You know, Justin, I just, I want to thank you for being such a damn fine example of doing it right with true integrity and it puts everyone else on notice. And once you see it and you see the success it can drive, you can't unknow it. And you've done that, you know, Ben and Jerry's, you've done it at Unilever and now with the new health and wellness division. So thank you for the leadership. Thanks for sharing the insights today. And we look forward to seeing what you're going to do with all these new companies. Watch this space. It's been great fun, Simon. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. And you can find out more information about today's guest, Jocelyne Solheim, in the description below. And if you enjoyed this episode, give it a thumbs up and make sure you subscribe to this channel. Lead with We is produced by Goal17 Media, and you can listen to all the episodes on Apple, Google, or Spotify. And if you're looking to go even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book, Lead with We, that's now available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you on the next episode, and until then, let's all lead with we.